You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. I want to start first by thanking you, you guys. Uh, I wrote this book uh, with what I've been learning over the last two and a half years, what I've been trying to embody, but basically I wrote down what I've been saying um, for the last two years, two and a half years to this church. And what I want to do today is I, I want to, I think this is a very good bridge from where we were at to where we were going. Last week we talked about how you are the salt of the earth. And I think maybe some of you thought that, um, okay, I'm the salt of the earth, so then I have to go do salty things. And what, where we landed last week was you are the salt of the earth, meaning you are. And you salt San Francisco with you. And so you have to like, you have to be the person, uh, the people of God. You have to be that. And so that has to do with identity. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I think it bridges really well into our series that we start next week on emotionally healthy spirituality or being emotionally healthy church. Now, when we started talking about emotionally healthy uh, uh, church, we, we just coined the the term emo church. We just said, this is the emo church. And so we just went with it. And so we start a series next week called emo church. So we're going to be for eight weeks, an emo church. Um, and it should be fun. We'll see how it goes. But that, this is what I want to do today. I want to walk you through kind of the story of how we, how, first how we came about this, this like topic came out. It was birthed out from where we were at like two and a half years ago. And then the, the message that I believe that God has us to live in as we move, move forward in our church. So um, if you have a Bible, if you do not, you can raise your hand. Ushers have Bibles for you. They're free, um, and you can take them home, and you can read the whole thing this week. Um, it's the most important book you ever read. Uh, so you raise your hand if you need one. Turn to Colossians, which is in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. Turn to the end of Colossians chapter 2, and we will be there this morning. Um, let me start by praying. God, I thank you so much for this church and this church body. And I, I just pray that today, Christ, you would be exalted above every name. That today in this room, that you would take uh, information and turn it into transformation. Some of these things that we're going to be talking about today, a lot of us know them. But we know them in our head. I confess, God, that a lot of what I'm saying I know in my head, and I need to push it down to my heart. And so I confess that to you, and, and I know that there are a lot of people here this morning that they're in the same place, that this, is, this might be head knowledge, but it's not heart. And so I pray that you would push this message of who we are in Christ and what that even means down to this, to like the, the core of our soul, the core of who we are. And so we thank you. We love you, and we pray, God, that today you would transform us into your image. Confess all the thoughts that are running through my head and all the anxious thoughts that I have, and I thank you that I can submit them to you because you care for me, and you care for us, God, and we can do that, as your word says. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's start here. Um, This is a picture of our first baptism. And you can't see in the background, but there's the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. And this was like the dumbest thing we've ever done. Because it was freezing cold. And uh, there's sharks in the water, I think, too. 
do this baptism, and I was really like weird about wearing a wetsuit to baptism, so I thought, I'll just put on a wool vest, but wool vests get wet and they get colder. So we were out there, it was colder than it is today, and imagine being in the ocean. And so we were out there, Tark and I, and look at this next picture, and Jason Stevens, who ruined everyone's baptism photo, because he had a bucket hat and a wife beater on. And Jason Stevens, uh, uh, at the time, a worship director, and wrote a lot of uh, original music, and still leads worship here. And it was, it was so fun. This was, a, I don't know, Tark, about a year, half a year, six months into our, our church, I believe, or something like that. And this was right when, man, one of, the, one of the best things in my life, besides getting to marry my wife, was being able to be a part of this church and this church plant. And to plant this church with, um, I, can, I can confess, planting this church with kind of low expectations, because um, churches don't typically go over well in San Francisco. And uh, where God had called us to plant the church and opened up a building for us to plant a church was in the Castro district. And um, not only were we in San Francisco, but we were in the, in the Castro. And so I, I was like, I, I told the people that were supporting us, give us five to 10 years to plant this church. And at that time, we might actually have something sustainable. And God decided to do that right away. I have no idea why. Um, I can't I can't, I can't talk to other pastors and give them some sort of formula. I don't know. But God started to do it. And start, God started to draw people to himself. And we started teaching through uh, the book of Mark. And, uh, and, I, and, I ha- and I, the reason why I wanted to do this was because I wanted people to get like a, 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 a dose of uh, the reality of who Christ really is. And so I would open up every sermon and like, I want to talk about who Jesus really is today. And the people started falling with Christ. And following Christ. So we're falling in love with him and following him. And loving Jesus was like a theme in the church. Like just something about Jesus. And and people were inviting their friends like, Jesus is there. And like, Jesus is there? And like, yeah, Jesus is there. So people were coming. And then we started two services. And by the, about a year, year and a half into it, we were um, having to go to three services. And People were just still coming, and if you were a part of the, the church at the Swedish American Hall, sometimes we had to turn people away, and it was just insane. And I had, we were just hanging on for dear life at this point. And I loved the fact that people were falling in love with Christ. And then it was spring 2011, about a year and a half into the church, and I started to go through a pastoral uh, crisis, and it was this. We had people in our church on one hand, who were falling in love with Jesus and following Jesus. So they were loving and following Jesus, like smiley face, right? Like, yeah, that's great. And this is every pastor's dream. Like, the church is growing and people are falling in love with Jesus. They're not like, oh my gosh, I'm going there because of this or because of that. Or They were like genuinely falling in love with Christ. But as I sat in counseling, and our staff and leaders were ministering, there was this sense that we loved Jesus and followed Jesus, but people were still sinning. What's up with that? I was sad about that. I mean, you guys are like, I know no one sins in here anymore. We're a different church now. <laughs> so no one does. But, but it was like this pervasive sort of like, I love Jesus, but then I do all this stuff. And then this was counseling. This was prayer every Sunday. And it was like, it shouldn't have been a shocker. Like, okay, people in church sin, yes. But the, the, the effect of it, the rea- like if people were meeting the real Jesus, why didn't that transform the real sin in their lives? And this is like this crisis I was having. And then I was like, okay, after we're done with, with um, the book of Mark, which was spring in 2011, we're done with the book of Mark. 
we were sitting in my office and Pastor Tarek was in there. I'm like, I'm going to teach on holiness, Tarek. And he's like, yeah, get him. I'm like, I'm going to teach on it. Because <laughs> we're like talking about the counseling appointments and people. I'm like, I'm going to teach on it and, I, 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 and I'm going to tell them this and I'm going to tell them that. And I thought about going all the way back to teaching on holiness the way I taught on holiness when I was a youth pastor. Because I was a youth pastor for like nine, ten years. And that, way, that meant like, um, who, who grew up in youth ministry in here? Like you grew up in, okay, maybe, not a lot of you, but a lot, a lot of you. Um, and when I was youth pastor, we did this thing, we did, we did like purity rings. You guys remember these things? Purity pledges, promise rings and purity pledges. And so it's like, okay, you're not going to sin anymore, and you're not going to sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and, and so wear this ring, and don't ever do it again. Like, okay, I promise. And they put the ring on, and you do a ceremony, and they sign something. That really happens. It might even happen today. I don't know. It might have been a 90s thing. But anyway. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to like break out the youth pastor hat and go, okay, let's commit. We're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to wear th- bracelets or something or rings. Or, and, I'm, and I'm going, oh, I, then I, this is where I started going through the crisis. I was, gonna, I was basically saying, church, I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to give you a list of things that you are not allowed to do. And I'm going to give you a list that says don't do this and don't do that. And don't drink this or too much of this and don't touch that. And here was the crisis I was having. Many people found refuge in a home at Reality when they came to SF. And the reason why they found a home here and a refuge here is because they, came, they, they moved to San Francisco to get away from religion like that. They came to San Francisco angry at religion like that. A religion that gave them lists. And when we taught through Mark, it was the Pharisees whom Jesus confronted all the time with the message of grace. It was the Pharisees who had the lists. And so I, I was stuck. I was like, how can, I, how can I get everyone in a room with the message of Jesus and then give them a list? And then there was this whole other layer. We were getting people in our church from the gay community and they were all too familiar with the list of religion. And to confess to you, there was a part of me, this part that's still there, that I'm still on. And the stuff that I'm teaching today isn't stuff that I've, I've written a book because I'm like, oh, I figured this out. I'm reading it, I wrote it because I'm trying to figure it out still. And I taught through it, trying to, I'm still today have to push this message down to my heart because there's parts of me that, are, that still operate out of, out of false identities. There was a part of me at this time the pleasing people part of me that was afraid to introduce the list to the church. I was afraid going, if I tell people about what they are, like the holiness things they have to do now, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that I, I'm just afraid they won't like me anymore. And God, I had to submit that to God. God has to deal with that. But there was this other part of me, this part I knew was trying to be faithful to God and faithful to the scriptures and faithful to Christ that wouldn't allow me just to introduce lists of right behavior making our church little good Christian church. And that's when I read this out of Colossians 2 for like maybe the hundredth time, maybe the fifth time, I don't know. I've read it enough, but it never clicked like it clicked during this time. And it says this, Colossians 2.20, and this is, if you turn your Bible there, you can look at your, your own Bible so you have a reference to it. It says, and Colossians 2.20, since you died, since, that's a huge word, you can circle that or something. Since you died, speaking of people who have died to Christ, these are Christians. 
Since you died to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, the Apostle Paul says, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, do not taste, do not touch. Lists. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. And look at this. These lists, where you, you stop doing this and stop doing that, these lists, though they seem very spiritual and very holy, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You can add lists to a church, you can give them all these things to do, but they, don't, they, they lack any real power to change. So Paul's saying something, I think, vitally important here. Right before moving on to chapter 3, which is about Christian sanctification in Colossians, which is basically sanctification is a big word meaning becoming more like Christ in holiness. Becoming more like Christ in servanthood. Becoming more like Christ in obedience. Before Paul writes on Christian, what Christian sanctification looks like, he says, adding all these external rules to Christianity, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, do nothing for restraining our physical, fleshly, sensual indulgences. What Paul is saying, and what he says to the church in Colossae is, lists are a way a cult does Christianity. Lists are a way cults do it. Lists are so easy to track. Lists are the way that a cult would do it. That's not real Christian life. The very things that I wanted to do and what pastors and parents want to accomplish, they want to accomplish sanctification in the people they're shepherding or they're leading or they're parenting by saying, stop that. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. These things speak to the environment, not to the heart. These things speak to the out, this basically is approach of an outside-in sanctification. Like if you dress like a Christian, it'll work its way in. If you wear Christian shirts that take like lingos, like Abercrombie and Fitch, and do like a, a bread crumb and a fish in Jesus' name or something like that. <laughs> if you wear shirts that are Christian-y, it'll somehow get down into your soul. It's this outward, outside-in sort of spirituality. This is the very thing that Jesus says does not work. He says this to the Pharisees who, who, are, who are like washing their hands, trying to cleanse the outside. And Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Like you look great outside, but there's dead life inside. It's trying to change the behavior without changing the heart. See, the problem with that is that we all live from a core truth. All of us operate or live our lives out of some core truth, something, something deeply true about us. Another way of saying that is every action we take has a sense of identity behind it. Every action that we take in life has a sense of identity behind it, whether we consciously know this or not. Example is if, if, if you're driving down the freeway and someone speeds past you at 90 miles an hour, chances are you're not gonna chase them down and give them a ticket because you don't have the identity that says I'm a police officer. But if you do, you chase them down and you get you give them the ticket because you have the identity that says, police officer, every action that we take has this sense of identity behind it. And, and the, if the actions that we take are this, if the actions that we have are, I'm addicted to pornography. If the actions are, I'm addicted to success. If the actions are your repeated patterns of broken relationships. Or you can't help yourself from self-medicating, whether it's 
substances or sex or the latest romance novel, whatever. Why do you do that? Why do we do that? If actions come from a sense of, a lot of it from our identity, what do you believe about yourself? Who are you? What is your identity in? See, traditionally, identity comes from what's identical about you in every situation. That's where you get the word identity. Identical, identity, you guys should get that. It's pretty easy. But when we start defining identity like that, the definition of finding and discovering an identity can be so hard. I mean, what, what's the same about you in every situation that you're in? What's at your unchangeable core? What do you find your identity in? Another way of saying this is identity is the truest thing about you. Identity is at that unchangeable, no matter what crowd you're in, no matter how you feel, no matter where you're at, no matter where you work, whether you've succeeded or failed at what you do, your identity is at this unchangeable core. We tend to find identity in one of three places. I say 10, or it can be a combination because we're complex people. I understand that. We typically find an identity. We operate out of these three things. And we do this interchangeably. We operate out of what we do defines who we are, what we have defines who we are, what we desire defines who we are. What we do, that's an easy one. San Francisco, a lot of you guys are here to work. That's why you moved here. And work with some of the best people in your field. Our career or our art or our craft, our discipline, that's how we find meaning in our life. What we do and what we do well. And this makes a ton of sense because what we do, especially in San Francisco, is what takes up most of our time. Working 80 hours a week for the startup that we are a part of. So it's easy to find an identity in what we do. A lot of us find an identity in what we have. What we earn, what we acquire, money, possessions. Or we find an identity in things that are given to us that are outside of our control. I know people that find their identity in their good looks. And you're always the person everyone wants to date. And you're always the one, the most attractive person in the room. And you gather an identity from that. Or the fact that you're creative, or you're charismatic, or you have this magnetic personality. You're charming and delightful. You always know what to say. You're very creative on Twitter, whatever. <laughs> but there's also this negative side to this. This is, what's, this is what a lot of people live with as well. You find your identity in being the person who's not attractive. You're not the most attractive person in the room. You're the one that grew up without a father or in a broken home or an abusive home or some disability or shortcoming and you define your entire life by that. You've been given that, that's outside of your control and you've pushed that down to like who you are. We also find an identity in what we desire. We say things like, I wanna be true to myself. You reject that thing as I'm not my job, I'm not my art or my family, I'm me. I am whatever I want to be. However, I want to express myself. That's who I really am. And this is also where we get, where, and where we form a sexual identity. I am what I desire. I am what I'm attracted to. The problem is that these identity structures, from what we do to what we have to what we desire, you're forming an identity around moving parts. Because all of those things can change in a moment. There is nothing that you do that is 100% secure. You can lose your job. 
Or you can realize that you hate your job. Or that what you went to school for isn't what you want to do with your life. And you've spent eight years and $700,000 on something that you don't want to do. And you have an identity crisis. Or you're an artist and your creativity stops. You know how you know if what you do is, uh, you've pushed it down to the truest thing about you is when you don't do that thing anymore and you fail at that thing. Not like fail in trying, but like fail in, at, at, like at a level to where there's almost no recovery. And you lose yourself. That's a powerful indicator that you found an identity in what you do. Or what you have. There's nothing about what you have that's given. Anything can be taken away from you. And we're all little bundles of conflicting desires. Every soul in here is a complex mix of sexual desire and spiritual desire and emotional desire and physical wants and they all conflict. You want to have a great body but you also want to eat Cancun burritos every (laughs) single day. Every day, all day. On a serious side, you want to please and serve God, but you also want to disobey and you want to do what you want to do. Oftentimes, you want to do good, but you don't have the power to carry it out. This is the same dilemma Paul was in, he was saying in Romans chapter 7. So then who are you? Where do you find your life? Where do you find your identity? What's the most true thing about you? What's at your changeable core? This is why identity matters. I know someone a friend, and he plays and he competes in a sport, and he's, he's good at it. He was good at it growing up. His dad taught him the sport. He almost went pro in the sport. My friend also has a son who plays and competes in the same sport, but his son is not as good as he was when he was young. And his son doesn't really even seem to care that he's not that good at it. He just enjoys the sport. Now, why was my friend better at his age than his son is? Now, there could be a million reasons why this is. But I can tell you a big one, maybe the one. My friend tried to get better and better and better at a sport to win the approval of his father. And that drove him. and drove him to be better and better and better to get the approval of his dad. And my friend's son, well, he knows he has the approval of his dad. So he approaches the sport completely differently. It's just a sport to him. Because if he's good at it or not, his dad loves him. So you have one son who's trying to be better and better to earn the approval from his dad and it drives him and consumes him and the sport is not just a sport but a way to prove he deserves love and attention. And you have another son who enjoys the sport because he knows who he is and he's secure in his father's love. This is life. This isn't just an analogy of sports. This is life. This is probably, this might be you. Identity matters because if we don't know who we are, we're trying to earn the love of someone the approval of someone. And so we have Jesus. And Jesus starts his ministry at age 30. And before he turned 30, we, don't, we know something of his life when he was 12. One instance, that's it. We don't know of anything of his life. 
He doesn't do any ministry before he's 30. He starts his ministry when he's 30. He starts his ministry. And this is how he starts his ministry. He goes down to be baptized by John. Matthew chapter 3 says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to tear him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why did you come to me? John knew who Jesus was. You're, you're the son of God. Why, you've done nothing wrong. Why, why am I baptizing you? This is a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John says, deal, I'm in. And then it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said this, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son and I love him. Eugene Peterson's translation says, and I'm glad that he was born. I'm so proud of my son. Now what's very interesting about this is that Jesus heard these words before he did anything. He didn't start his ministry yet. If this was a Hollywood kind of rendition of this, what we would do if we were writing the script, we would put this sentence, this statement at the end of Jesus' life when Jesus actually did something. We don't know nothing of this guy. Who is he? All we know is that his father really loves him. You know what this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry before he does anything, before any miracle is done? Before he goes to the cross and he pays the debt of the sin of the whole world, before he does anything, you know what this is? This is an identity statement over him and everyone heard it and he heard it. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. You're my son. And you know how we know this is an identity statement? Do you know how we know that Jesus as fully human needed to hear this from the Father? Because the very next sentence, this is not a new chapter in the way it was written. This might be a new chapter in your Bibles, but this was the very next sentence in the Scriptures. The very next sentence says this, Then Jesus was led to the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the actual devil. The real one. Like the, not demon, the devil. The one. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, think about that. He hears from the Father, you're my son, I love you, I'm well pleased with you. And then he's tempted, and how is he tempted? Are you really the Son of God? Does God really love you? Does the Father really delight over you? Is that really true? Jesus was, fall, was tempted into false identities. This is who you are, you're loved, and then drove, he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted. Very next verse. Tempted into false identities. Identity matters. Who you are matters. Now back to Colossians. If we operate our lives out of a core truth about us, simply something deeply true about us, what is true about the follower of Jesus? What is true about you? This is what Paul says next in Colossians, the very next sentence. It's a new chapter, but it's the next sentence. He says this. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Since 
then. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life. So what is Paul getting at here? Paul starts, if you remember at the very beginning of this, Paul says, lists don't work. Lists do nothing, nothing to curb sensual indulgences. They do nothing to, to, to deal with that sort of thing. Lists don't work. There's a better way. What is the better way? What's better than lists? And this is where it clicked for me. This is where we started to teach through this series was Instead of teaching this church lists, I must teach myself, I must teach this church who they are, who you are in Christ. And that is way better than don't do this and don't do that. And we have come to believe that this better way, I've come to believe that this better way is the way of the Christian life in the New Testament. It is the thrust of the teachings of Jesus. It's the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the, the focus of the, of the letters to the churches that Paul was writing to. When we went through 1 Corinthians, I told you that all Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is trying to teach the Corinthians their identity in Christ. This is who you are now. You were this and now you're this. I've come to believe this is the focus. Identity and thus sanctification for the follower of Jesus hangs on a simple sentence. And it is this, be who you are. And that might sound so new agey. You're like, oh my gosh, my pastor, he's so like new agey. He's like, be who you are and all this stuff. <laughs> but this is, this is what Paul's getting at. For the Christian, he simply says, all the New Testament letters like, could you just be who you are? Because do you know who you are in Christ? You know what he's done for you? As, as the father spoke over Jesus, you're my son. And I'm, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. Live into that. You don't have to earn my approval. You have it. It changes the way we approach our jobs. It changes the way that we approach relationships. It changes the way that we approach pastoring. It changes the way I approach pastoring. But this isn't just one thing f- This is not just like you remember this one time and it's done. You have to keep pushing this down and pushing this down and pushing this down. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what Jesus was getting at when we talked about last week when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are. This is who you are. Be who you are. You are the light of the world. Be who you are. And then at the same time, I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved. And I read a single sentence that changed my life. And he wrote this, and I love, I love Nouwen's writings. And he wrote, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, from that moment we, we say yes to that truth, like, yeah, I'm the beloved of God. He says, we are faced with the call to become who we are. Once you realize the truth that you are indeed beloved of God and you say, like, you receive that, It's good news. All you do with good news is you receive it. News you receive. You're like, 
when Seattle loses today, we'll just receive that good news. Like, we'll just say, <laughs> sorry. God help me. Um, you receive good news. And when, what now is saying is once you receive the truth, you claim it, it's yours, it's true, that you're the beloved of God, all you're faced with now, it's not just, it's not lists, lists happen later. What, you, what, you, what all lists are pointing to is this, I'm going to become who I am. Now how can he say that? What the Colossians do not yet realize and what a lot of followers of Jesus today do not realize is that the fulfillment of all our hopes has already come in Christ. We have received everything we need in Christ. Meaning you are loved by God. In Christ you are accepted by God. In Christ you are put in right relationship with God. And not by your own doing. Not because you have the right family. Not because you have the right education. Not because you have the right desires or attractions. Not because you have the right job but because of the sacrificial atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is it. Now our call, according to Paul in Colossians 3, and now and in that quote, is to become who we are. Basically to live out of that truth. To live as if that was the truest thing about you. Truer than what you do. Truer than what you have. Truer than what you desire. Truer than your situation in life, your lot in life. Truer than your looks or your past or your abuse or your disorders. Those things are true, but they're not the truest thing about you. Whatever you believe is the truest thing about you will be your functioning identity. I'm here to tell you, according to the scriptures, that identity is safely secured in the God who loves you. Here's something else I read during this time that was really helpful. It's by Timothy Keller. He wrote this in his stuff. We were going through a small groups back in the first year uh, called Gospel Christianity, he writes this. He says, identity is a complex set of layers. For we are many things. Our occupation, ethnic identity, etc. of all part of who we are. We're all, we're all many things. But we assign different values to these components and thus Christian maturing, listen to this, we assign different values. Desire becomes like the biggest value that we have or our ethnicity or our job or whatever become our biggest values. But he says Christian maturing is a process in which the most fundamental layer of our identity becomes our self-understanding as a new creature in Christ along with all our privileges in him. What he's saying is that all these things are, 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 are true but what we've done is we've, we've kind of taken them and we've assigned values as truest. Like that's, that's it, I'm that. My desire, that's, what I, that's who I am. My job, that's who I am. My abuse, that's who I am. My looks, my attractions, whatever, that's who I am. And we, we assign a value of absolute on that thing. And he goes, you know what Christian maturing is? All Christian maturing is this, is realizing who we are in Christ and pushing that so far down, so far down, so far down, that that becomes the most valuable thing in our lives. That becomes truer than any other truth that we ever hear. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that the follower of Jesus is the one who has placed their faith in Christ the Christian is given a new identity. Trusting in Christ by faith, following Jesus means you have a new identity. Identity not based on moving parts or emotions or conflicting desires or a job opportunities or even merit or godliness. It's a new identity. And what is this new identity? It's your life in Christ. Christ, Paul writes, is your life. But let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. It's rhetorical. Is Christ your life? 
Is Christ your life? Now, some of you guys, by just that, if I, if I was to look you in the face, is, is Christ your life? Before you feel super condemned, you're like, oh, he's not. And you just crumble. <laughs> or you're like, I did my devos this morning. I'm killing it today. <laughs> yes, he's my life. My gosh. Like, woke up and I read, like, the Bible and, like, I'm, whatever. I'm on track on my daily reading, whatever. Like, before you do that. I think if we were really honest, a lot of us, most of us would say, no, he's not my life with one caveat, but I want him to be my life. Christ is not my life, but I want him to be. And if I asked you, why isn't Christ your life? You're like, well, because I still sin. I still choose my own way. I still do what I want to do. I don't pray enough. I still don't forgive certain people, etc." But what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and what the New Testament proclaims is not Christ is your life if. He doesn't say Christ is your life if you accomplish A, and if you give away this, and you forgive that person. Paul says, and he proclaims over you and I, Christ is your life. He is. It's a fact. It's called an indicative in Scripture, and we went over this last week, but I want to give you the full weight of it. I need you to realize this. I need you to understand this. This is the teaching part of this sermon. It's called an indicative. Colossians 3 is full of indicatives. Like you have been raised with Christ. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Christ who is your life. These are all indicatives. Now here's what an indicative is. There's indicatives in scriptures and there's imperatives in scriptures. An indicative is something that has been indicated or declared about you. It is a fact. It is a truth about you. An imperative is something that we're to do. It's a command. Now when we go to the Bible, Christians love the imperatives. If I just told you what to do, everyone would feel really, really good today. Hey, do this. We're like, yeah, 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 I'll do that. Some of us that are like more anti-establishment types, you're like, I say do this. You're like, I'm not going to do that. Don't give me things to do. Don't give me. We either, we either love the command, like the, these, 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 these imperatives, we either love them because we can chart our growth or we hate them because we think it's a threat to our freedom. But both these approaches are wrong as it comes to Scripture. And the reason why they're wrong is because every single imperative, every single command is based on an indicative. Let me say this again. I don't want you to miss this. You need to understand this. Every single command in Scripture is based on a truth about you. Every single one. Before God tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. And unless you understand and drive the truth of who you are deep into your heart, you'll never understand the command. A Scottish preacher, Sinclair Ferguson, said, So often in our preaching, our indicatives, our truths, speaking to pastors, our truths are not strong enough, great enough, or holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives, the commands. So our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod. That was me. I was almost there. I was just going to pull out the rod and start beating people. So our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we have looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. All we see in the New Testament is things that we're supposed to do. We've seen our own failure and we've seen the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great truths of the gospel that sustain the commands. The reason why the commands of God can be so heavy sometimes is you forgot who you are. It's the gospel indicatives that support the imperatives. We collapse under the command unless we know who we are. So let me ask you again, is Christ your life? 
That is not an imperative. It does not come with a checklist to see if it's true. It's an indicative. It is true about you by placing your trust and faith in Jesus. Christ is your life. Truth. Fact. And now Paul says, become who you are. This is why whenever you find a command in Scripture, you will somehow around it find a truth about you. So if you jump to a very difficult command like flee sexual immorality, that's not just a weight that you carry. It's flee sexual immorality. But before Paul says that, he says, you, your body, is not your own because you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Christ is in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Before he says, do this, he says, this is who you are. You are in Christ. And he's, with his own blood, purchased your body. And he's made it holy. And he lives in you. Therefore, do this. We're told in Philippians 3, that we are, or 2, that we're to have the mind of Christ. How hard is that? How hard is it to be humble and, and all that? But we're told this. Before we're told, hey, you better be humble. He says, have this mind in, do, in you, which is yours in Christ. He doesn't say, hey, be humble. He says, before he says that, he's like, you, you have the mind of Christ. You can be. And if you think about the list to end all lists, the Ten Commandments, when I go around, I always ask, I won't, I won't do this today because you guys are sharp, but I always ask, what's the first commandment? And, and someone raises their hand and says, we're, 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 to, we're to worship God alone and have no other idols. So I'm like, well, yes. And how does the Ten Commandments start? And they used to just say, have no other idols and have no idols and have no, serve no other God. I'm like, actually, the Ten Commandments start like this. Um, you were a slave in Egypt, but I bought you back. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. So before it gets into commandments, God says, you were a slave and now you're free. That's who you are. And this is how you live in your freedom. So before God ever gives us what to do, there's identity statements about who we are. And the reason why this is so important, church, this is so crucial. It's because all of us, and I will, I will confess me, I do this, operate out of things that are not that true about us. All of us push down to a layer of truest what is simply might be true or some days true and not other days. All of us do this. And so what I'd like to do today as a, an act of faith in Christ, taking God at his word, and also an act of, almost an act of rebellion. I want us to worship like this. I want us to worship like, Job, you are great. You are good, whatever. But you're not my life. Christ is my life. Like some of you guys need to say that out loud. Some of us need to, to, to really believe that. You're, you're, you are great. You've helped me like live in San Francisco or whatever. And you've given me meaning. And you've given me like meaning in my work. But you're not my life. Christ is my life. And some of us need to 
say heartbreak. You guys have, some of us gone through such massive heartbreak. And you just say, you know, you've, you, it's the, people say you make me better, but I don't know. But you're not my life. Christ is my life. And desire, you're there. And all of us desire, but you're not my life. Christ is my life. In school, you're good, and you might give me a good job one day, but you, you will give me debt. But you're not my life. <laughs> you're not my life. Christ is my life. And this is how we need to worship today. This is what we need to push down again and again and again to the core of who we are. And then when we do, when we do this, this is what it means to be the people of God. To be. To, as we will talk about in a couple of weeks, as it says in Emotionally Healthy Church, we are not human doings, we're human beings. We can be loved. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us the way you do. It's absolutely scandalous to think of. And I pray that we together would live out of this truth. That we would live as if this, our identity in you is the most important, truest, fundamental part of who we are. And all these other things, God, everything else, job and hurt and desire and what we have and all these other things that we that are that are that are there would be would 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 be pushed down and say you're not my life Christ is my life or may we be a whole church that is so secure in the love of God I want that would you do that Lord would you would you draw us to that place Holy Spirit I pray that you would pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts right now. That those in here that might not have ever experienced the love of God would experience the love of God and the favor of God and the grace of God. And I pray, God, if we feel condemned, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If we feel heavy with the weight and the burden of our desires or our jobs that we'd roll them over to you and say you are our life. You would do that God. Do that now as we take communion as we respond to you in Jesus name. Amen.